next question, which is how do we connect with Gen Z? Yeah. Um, this will probably get its own clip just because I really want to give you a moment to yeah. really go through and summarize uh, what you presented at the Telios conference mm -hmm. regarding the next generation and trauma and what you're noticing. I'm really excited to bring it home with this one. So mm -hmm. share with us about this one. I'm really excited. Yeah. So um, in my work, uh, I teach a, a big range of students and range of classes. Um, I teach predominantly undergraduate students. So I've, I've taught graduate students and I'm, I'm going to be teaching some doctoral students later this year, but I mostly teach undergraduate students. And uh, most of my undergrad students are Gen Z. And um, this past year, uh, I, I entered into this new role as you know tenure track assistant professor. And I get into the classroom with my students. And after day one, I'm like, who the heck are these people? I mean, I thought I understood students. I thought I had gotten it. Um, and so I go back up to the offices and I go knock on my colleagues' doors and I'm like, who are these people? Like, I've, I, I don't know who they are. I don't know what I'm interacting with. And they were like, we are baffled too. Uh, and so then I went to upperclassmen. I went to some seniors and I was like, what can you tell me about these freshmen that I'm meeting? And they were like, we got nothing. We don't know. <laughs> like, uh oh, <laughs> you know, so I started really paying attention. Like, oh my gosh, like who are these people? Because as, as a professor, I know I will be most effective as a teacher if I have a sense of where my students are, right? I've, I've got to figure out where they are so that I can communicate in a way that meets them. And so I, um, one of the classes that I teach is called Cornerstone. And it's kind of like a welcome to university class. You know, here are the skills you will need. Um, here are kind of the basics that, that you're going to need going forward. And um, so I was teaching Cornerstone this past year. And on Mondays, all of the sections of Cornerstone gather together in a big amphitheater. And it's like one of these rare moments where all the freshmen are all together um, and those of us who teach those classes have this like unique opportunity to sit in the space with all of them for a little bit. And so you get, you get a sense for kind of their cohort. You get a sense um, for the culture that's emerging among them. And uh, every year at one of these Monday spotlight lectures, um, one of our professors uh, poses this thought experiment to our students. And he says, um, if you were the ambassador of the future, like imagine that's a thing, imagine that's a job, like a government level job, your job as ambassador of the future is to meet with global leaders and raise their awareness to global issues and presuming that they have the resources it takes to meet these issues. Um, what what issues as ambassador of the future would you raise? Like, what do we need to have our attention fixed on, you know, for the next 10, 20, 50 or 100, you know, 500 years? What What is it that we need to be thinking about? Every time that uh, he has asked this question in the past, like I, I taught this course when I taught um, earlier before starting my PhD. And every time. Um, among these like very young millennial students, the conversation is just buzzing. 
you know, and they're, they're raising all kinds of things, you know, uh, climate change, like, um, uh, the economy and, you know, what is that country doing with that country or what's happening with this war or this crisis? And, and they could all be thinking, um, in terms of future, like future infrastructure, things like that. This time, for the first time ever that I had seen, uh, the question is asked and the room is silent. Hmm. And like you hear like a low hum. There's some people whispering and thinking, but I, it's not bustling by any means. And I look at my students and they're all just sitting there just kind of stunned. And so then I'm like, well, maybe they're just shy. You know, maybe I have a shy batch of students. So I start walking around trying to engage them. Hey, what would you turn your attention to? You know, what future crises? And they're like, we don't know. Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean you don't know? And they're like, how could I know what what the future holds? Hmm. And I was like, well, is there anything? Like, what what do you think might be a problem in 10 years? I don't know. So I'm like, oh gosh, you know, so I left that and with my trauma education, you know, with me, I was like, this, this has some, some trauma vibes. Um, so I, I logged that away and thought I'm going to keep working with this. So I get into the classroom with them on Wednesday and I think, okay, I'm going to creatively find a way to reopen this and try to get them in. So we do some different things in the classroom. And finally, I kind of toss it back to them. I'm like, hey, let's try to envision the future together. Um, what problems do you see in like five years, 10 years, 15 years? And they're blank again. But now they can sense that they've been getting it wrong, you know, because I, I brought it back up. And so now they're like, uh oh, you know. So they're trying and they're genuinely trying. Um, but every answer that they pull forward is either a current or past problem. So they're like, the rise of social media. And I'm like, well, that already happened. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so they're, they're like, um, the COVID vaccine. And I'm like, that that was already developed. That, that already happened, you know? Um, or one of them was like, uh, a tornado just hit my hometown. And I'm like, I mean, that's like, a, that's a present crisis, you know? And so they, they were having trouble breaking into that future vision. And I realized that all the examples they were bringing forward were specific concrete examples of wounds that they are presently carrying. Hmm. There was no kind of like figurative, theoretical, like, well, this economic problem in this other country, like. It was all, here's my wound, here's my wound, here's my wound, and I can't see beyond it. Um, and so I started thinking about this generation. And, and I have drawn from that anecdote um, to kind of reflect on uh, some of the struggle of Gen Z. Uh, something that a lot of people say about Gen Z is that they're constantly wanting to talk about mental health. And like older generations, like millennials, uh, Gen X and boomers, they're like, ugh, like, why can't we re-stigmatize mental health? Like Gen Z just wants to talk about mental health all the time. And like, there's this kind of like, um, 
caricature that emerges of like almost like petulant children who all think that they're having a crisis and then these like super stable adults who like are just tired of it and (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like okay what what i'm seeing here is actually different generational responses to wounds different Mm -hmm. generational responses to trauma um because older generations have also carried trauma just maybe different kinds of trauma um, and have also been culturally shaped in different ways to respond to those traumatic wounds in, in different ways. Gen Z um, has had uh, what I would consider to be just a, an inordinate, excessive kind of cultural exposure to trauma. Um, so when I presented this material at the Teleos conference, I highlighted a few of these areas. So one is the rise of gun violence. Um, as a millennial, I remember the the shooting at Columbine mm-hmm. as being a pivotal moment. Um, there's before Columbine and there's after. Absolutely. Um, and so before Columbine, school is a safe place. Always, inherently, school is a safe place. Um, you don't talk to strangers on the way home when you're walking home, but like otherwise, school is safe. Um, Post Columbine, it fractured that narrative. There was like a tear in that narrative. And so you knew from that point on, there's always the possibility that school might not be safe. And so after Columbine, you started to gradually see the rise of securitization of schools. But even as millennials witnessed the rise of securitization of schools, it was always fixed to the before and after narrative. The idea that school was once safe, maybe it can be safe again, right? It's kind of the Hmm. thought, like something has gone wrong to make school unsafe. Mm -hmm. For Gen Z, they have never known school as being a safe place. Wow. For them, it's always been uh, an, an inherently risky place um, because Gen Z, um, from the time they were very little, they were doing school shooting drills um, and they were being sold backpacks that are bulletproof. And um, and they were being uh, given those talks from their parents about being safe at school and what to do if if there's a school shooter. And, and by this point, the statistics are horrifying. The vast a percentage of Gen Z Americans who have either experienced school shootings firsthand or have loved ones who have been involved in school shootings or exist in the same communities as school shootings. And so you have people who have firsthand kind of traumatic uh, encounters, right? Um, They are those kids who are hiding in the bathroom stall, hearing gunshots and there's trauma. But you also have kind of a secondary trauma. The kid who's in the neighboring town, who knows that just happened in close proximity and it could happen here. And it's kind of a traumatic exposure. Um, not to mention the impact of, of social media. Kids are, are seeing and hearing these stories with greater frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, the internet and social media kind of gives a sense that the traumatic wounds are everywhere all at once. There's no escaping them. Um, they're everywhere. They're bleeding over into everything. Um, and so there is no escape, really. It's setting the terms for their existence. Wow. 
the world feels dangerous and scary. And the truth is like a lot of Gen Z don't even know to say that that's how it feels because for them, this is just baseline. Like this is just right. And so they don't know even to say like the world feels comparatively scary for them. They're just, they're just anxious and they don't know why. Um, So like what I see in my students a lot of times is um, as they're coming into the college experiences, they're just rattled. Like there's just high anxiety wafting off of them. They're, they're in their limbic system, right? Like they're in that limbic response, like, uh, and they don't know that it could be any other way. Uh, They're just kind of like their nerves are singed, you know, they're just constantly exposed to the traumatic wounding. Um, And then, you know, add to the fact that they were in a really critical time of um, adolescence when COVID hit. And so, you know, you think about the age of like 15, 16, 17, that's a critical time where a teenager should be asserting their independence. And it's awful for parents. Parents hate it usually um, because it's scary. You know, their kid gets a driver's license and, you know, the kid breaks curfew, right? And the parent's panicking. Uh, But then the kid makes it home safe. And it's like, hey, there were rules in place. They tested the rules. We worried. Um, But the parent learns in that moment that sometimes, you know, you don't know where your kid is and they could still be safe. You know, mm. um, and so there's like an important stage there in that parent child relationship where the kid is gaining independence and the parent is learning to let go a little bit and there's rules in place. Um, but also you, the parent is coming to terms with the fact that soon that teenager is going to be a young adult calling the shots. And so think about that critical age. Think about Gen Z and how many of them were either in that stage or going to be entering into that stage soon when COVID hit. And so now they're they're at home or they're being heavily monitored. Um, the parents are already just kind of freaked out and rattled by, by everything that's happening around them. And the kids, again, they don't have a sense for how this differs from anybody else's teenage experience. They, they're smart enough to know it probably does but they don't even know fully what they've missed. Uh, it's just, again, it's setting the terms. And so the mass traumatic exposure is setting the terms for this generational cohort. And so I've described it as a traumatized age. And that's my way of trying to get at the way that the culture of this generational cohort has been shaped by traumatic wounding. Um, And it's important to say that not every person who is Gen Z is traumatized. Right. Right. Like trauma, um, it has its own kind of distinct pathology in the clinical sense. Not everybody is traumatized. Not everybody is a trauma survivor. Um, And yet the mass exposure to trauma and the prevalence of traumatic wounding in this generation means that the culture has been shaped by traumatic wounds and traumatic responses. Um, They've been socialized in this way. And so where, where I kind of bring that back around to my opening anecdote is that, you know, I'm receiving a generation of students in my Bible classrooms in my theology and ministry classrooms, I'm receiving a generational cohort that is impacted by kind of the the nature of trauma 
And part of what comes with that is difficulty envisioning the future because the past wound is always interrupting the present. It's always mm. claim to the present. Um, the, the fear of that, that um, crisis, that uh, threat is always in breaking. I um, mean, it's setting the terms for how one thinks about themselves in the world and how they envision themselves in the future. And so uh, there's a study that I cite in, in that uh, plenary that I gave, um, which, by the way, I am reworking for an article in Teleos Journal. So. Yes, very, very good. <laughs> um, but there's a study that I cite uh, where they, they discover that incoming Gen Z students, uh, when, they, when they go to college, Fewer and fewer go to college with the thought that this will be a formative experience, that it'll be a time for them to discern like their calling or their vocation. More and more they're going to college because they need financial security. And they are going to go to college to figure out how to make money to be safe in this kind of perilous, um, difficult to imagine future. So they're equipping themselves for the unknown future which must be scary. It must be tenuous because that's what trauma does, right? Is it makes the future like a really bad dream. And, um, and so they're arming themselves, they're equipping themselves for a struggle, for a fight, rather than being able to enter into college as young adults ready to trial and error, um, ready to fail at some things and succeed in others, ready to kind of like go into the professor's office and say, what do I wanna be when I grow up? <laughs> those conversations have been suspended. Yeah. And instead you've got students who are going, I need to get my ducks in a row. Um, I'm going to save this much money so that I can um, advance in this way in my career so I can uh, provide for my family um, so that someday my kids have what they need. And it's just a different way of thinking about the future. In some ways it reminds me of like um, the great depression era Uh where there's like this this reckoning, a, a fearful reckoning with human vulnerability, and so a whole generation goes, "We're in survival mode," mm -hmm. you know, tie tie your money into your curtains, you know, hide it under your couches, <laughs> like make things secure as possible for this unknown, scary future. Um, and I see that happening with Gen Z, and where that troubles me as a theology professor is I'm seeing that it makes it very hard for this generation to feel. Hope, or mm. to cultivate hope, um, to to build their lives according to hope, um, because hope requires a kind of openness to the future. Um, but if the future is really scary, then you're not really open to it. You're kind of guarding against it, you know. Uh, and so I, in my plenary, I talked about the importance of helping, like coming alongside this generation, listening intently to their wounds, taking seriously what they are disclosing to us about their mental health, um, and then being able to come uh, into that relationship with them and gradually help them um, build a hopeful framework for the future. Uh, and so something I talked about in my plenary is um, just some, some basic kind of trauma-informed approaches to this. Real, real uh, quick, Amy, I just want to say what you're saying this is what softened everyone's heart in the room at that conference yeah. because what you're doing right now again you did a great job with it with the racial racial stuff 
is you're you're helping to lower the the defenses through compassion and through being human. As an image bearer, we are we're we're human. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're saying this isn't just some entitled, ridiculous, out of touch yeah. generation. This is a generation that was born into the collective experience of modern trauma. That's right. And their context is that they don't understand safety the way we understood it. I remember before Kalamine, not to get into it and all that, but that was a that was a that was a, a turning point. Yes. And so that idea of that schools have been so securitized, like I even think of what happened in Uvalde. Like as you were saying that, I was holding it together because yeah. it's not a question, Amy, of if but when. Right. The next shooting happens. That is reality. Yes. And yeah. so that is something, that's a conversation that you have to have with a five or seven-year-old, not right. just a 15 or 17-year-old. So just that frame of, guys, think about what they're going through. The pandemic wasn't easy for us. Do you think it was easy right. for them? Right. That was formative for them in such a way where for some people, it's, it's, it's canceled hope. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're also being told, who knows, there could be nuclear war coming up. We, right. we Globalization, like their worlds are very fractured. Yes. And and what we do is we look at their lifelines as social media and we just, we look at it in a very, I think, condemning way. We do. But that is a lifeline. That's a support system for them. And yeah. in a way that I think you, you hit on really well at the conference as well. But anyway, mm-hmm. thank you for helping people who are just ready to look down and condemn them, to have some compassion. That's yeah. th- I think that's what's most needed right now, Amy. Yeah, well, and I think about um, what you said earlier in this conversation about how they are the future. I mean, the yes. moment you've been able to conceive of this world being yours, it's not. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> you, you, so true. so fast. Yeah. Uh, and so the world already belongs to these kids, these young adults. Yeah. Um, they're inheriting whatever we leave for them, but they're also um, repurposing the tools and, and uh, changing the rules and, and making the world their own in the way that they should. Um, and we have a hard time partnering with them or even releasing some things to them. Um, but ready or not, that that is happening. And so, you know, those of us who have been entrusted with teaching or mentoring or caring for these uh, Gen Z adolescents and young adults, um, I think the best way forward is to be trauma attentive, mm. uh, to be trauma informed, to understand what they're up against and how that has shaped who they are um, so that they have the best shot possible at, um, at being able to lead hopeful um, whole lives. Um, you know, I, we should want that for these kids. Um, but that means taking them seriously. It means partnering with them. It means listening um, and being willing to admit where our lives are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's pretty critically important, I think. Um, and so uh, some practical things that I have found helpful um, with my students is like one, just being a, being a validating presence. Mm-hmm. So when a student says like, I'm struggling with depression. And it's, you know, the 10th student that said that to you in, you know, the last few days. And you're like, oh, they're all depressed. You know, that's the temptation. But instead going, gosh, why are they all depressed? (laughs) 
right? Like, rather than brushing it away going, oh, this is, this is bad. They're trying to tell us something. Um, you know, or, or when my student emails me and says like, I, I'm having a meltdown and I'm, I don't know what to do. And, and instead being like, well, they just need to buck up being like, okay, why, why does the student not have what they need today? Hmm. And, and how can I come alongside them compassionately and, and in a very compassionate way, get them in touch with the resources that are going to help them. Um, get them in touch with life-giving resources that will help them get from point A to point B. Um, and then also like in my own teaching, like, and I've, I've also talked about this with, with ministers, um, but like with my students, having an awareness of their bodies, right? If bodies keep the score, if the bodies hold the stories, um, that means that sometimes our Gen Z students don't know how to tell us what they're feeling and they wow. don't always know how to tell us like where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just knowing that the bodies hold stories um, and then being being gentle with that, being sensitive or attentive. Uh, and so in my own classroom, sometimes that looks like breathing, like a breath prayer, uh, starting class with a breath prayer, you know, um, breathing in an attribute of God, like God is merciful and gracious, you know, and then um, like releasing fear and anxiety for today, you know, or something like that, but just easing them into some healthy ways of relating to their own bodies and caring for their own bodies. Um, I also uh, am attentive to like the, the feeling in the room. Like, so if students come in and it's like high anxiety, then I will take the extra time to ask about it. I'll be like, Hey, uh, so what does your week look like? How many of you have big projects coming up? You know, how many of you have exams and they'll raise their hands and, um, and then I also have like a prayer book that I pass around and they can write prayer requests in the book. If they're not in a place to self-disclose what's weighing on them, they can put it in the book or whatever. And even if they never raise their hand about stress or they never write in the book, what I've done in that moment is I've shown them that I care hmm. and I've shown them this is a room where like you are being held where your life is welcome. Um, and, and you, I see you and I care about you and just offering that kind of safety, um, makes it more possible for the students to step into learning. Um, if they feel any ounce of safety, (laughs) as safe as they can feel in a school environment, for example, um, it makes it better a better learning environment for them. Um, and then I also do uh, some what I call text blocking, and I learned this yeah. from other uh, amazing professors. But like reading a, a story from scripture and inviting students um, to self to self select and to come down and like um, take on a physical posture of a character in the story I'm reading, and they kind of do a tableau. And then I ask them, like, you know, so let's say I've read the story of the the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and she tugs on Jesus's cloak and I've invited my students to block this. So I've got like a student who's Jesus, you know, and he might be standing or she might be standing and they're turning and looking. And then, you know, somebody is being the woman who's bleeding and they might be reaching up to Jesus. And then you've got the crowd pressing in and I'll go around and ask each of the students. So what do you see? 
in the story from this perspective. So, so you're being Jesus right now. What do you see? Mm. And they might say, well, I see the crowds. I'm like, well, what's the facial expression of the crowd? You know, uh, uh, do they notice the, the woman? You know, what do you see with the woman? And what does it feel like? And then I go to the woman who's down here. What do you see? Well, I'm looking up at Jesus. I'm looking up at the crowds, you know. And it's this kind of physical play that draws them out of their own bodies for a moment. And they're imagining a different perspective, trying something on. Um, and then I'll have them switch up characters sometimes. So, okay, Jesus, now you're going to be the woman and, and the woman, now you're going to be Jesus. Now, what do you see? You know? And then when they get back in their seats, every single time they look more comfortable. Wow. Exercise <laughs> deeply uncomfortable, you know, but then they're back in their seats and they're kind of returning to their bodies and it's like, Ooh, and it's a little bit of a reset, you know? And so there are these different things that you can do to tend to the bodies in the room um, that can be really meaningful and very attentive uh, to where people are and, and can ultimately open up avenues for learning. Yeah. I, I love that. And one of the things that the, that you also kind of covered. So I love all the different ways that you like practically intervene. Um, yeah. And I also appreciate the reframe that you give us on how to look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always ask people, it's interesting, we make disparaging comments towards the next generation constantly. My question yeah. always to people is, well, who raised them? Yeah. <laughs> it's always a million, I mean, and it's, it's, it just is so interesting to me how disparaging we can yeah. be. Yeah. And we created the world for them. Mm-hmm. We created this world. Yeah. And... I, I, I guess I'm wanting to know just is a is a parting shot or just one little last piece with it is when it comes to social media, right? Because yeah. to your point, it does create this 24-7 news cycle for them of bad news, tragedy, trauma. And I do think that social media does have some negative effects on the brain. Sure. And at the same time, underneath that is this yearning for connectedness that yeah. I think gets pathologized. Yeah. So people will be like, oh, there's all these kids in a circle. They're not talking. They're on their phones. I get that. Right. But what's what's up? Shed a little bit of intel for us on what's happening in terms from a process perspective mm-hmm. for yeah. them. Yeah. So something that's pretty interesting is um, I've, I've, I've been asking my students, uh, I did this both semesters this past year, where I said, okay, tell me, what is the greatest source of distress in your lives? And they all almost unanimously will like hold up their phones. And they're like, they're my phone. My <laughs> phone is the greatest source of distress. I'm like, right, yeah. Um, that that makes sense, you know. And, yeah. and as, um, as someone who was born in the 80s, who, who witnessed the rise of, you know, personal cell phones and like having that thing in your pocket all the time and beckoning your attention all the time, I'm like, that tracks. It seems pretty distressing. Um, but then I say, how many of you think you could go without it for a day? And nobody can imagine it. Every now and then I might have like one student who's like, yeah, I think maybe I could do a day. They really can't conceive of their lives without it. And so I've had some meaningful conversations with these students about why that is. And they're constantly telling me like, well, this is how we communicate. Like, this is how I know what's going on with my friends. Um, this is how 
I know what's going on in my social environment. Hmm. Um, this is, and some of them have even indicated like this is what's providing for them a sense of normalcy. Wow. Uh, so in a world where they might feel isolated or under threat, social media gives them a sense of normalcy. It's a way of connecting into some generational norms, um, a way of participating mm. in a cohort. Um, and so it, I don't want us to underestimate the, um, like the, the significance of social media as a connecting point for these students. It's not a perfect medium by any means. And mediums do shape us. Like there is something formational happening in this generation in the way that they are mediating uh, themselves through social media. But I, I also want us to be, um, be able to nuance and complicate and say, so maybe they're being formed in some, some bad ways, but also if you were to take it away, they would suddenly be like, you know, out adrift without a paddle, you know, like just, that this is their primary mode of connecting. And something else that I think is really important for our understanding of Gen Z is sometimes older generations look at Gen Z and they're like, you know, Gen Z is, is woke or Gen Z is mobilized or Gen Z is, you know, anything goes. Like all the old cultural rules that apply no longer apply to Gen Z. And part of what we're seeing is that Gen Z in being a social media generation, they have constant access to stories of people who are different from them mm -hmm. and the buffer that's created on social media or in technology in general makes it possible for somebody to sit back without having to have everything right the right words or the right approach they can sit back and receive a story engage it even gain compassion for it and learn about it um, with considerably less risk and so Gen Z is gaining cultural aptitude, uh, aptitude mm. at a much faster rate than any prior generation. Um, and of course, Gen Z is variegated. Like there are, there are conservative, there are liberal, there are, um, you know, extroverted and introverted. There are those who are more compassionate and less compassionate. Uh, we all like, um, there's a, a very much a, a visible, movement of like masculinity coming up through gen z which i think is a really interesting phenomenon um so they're not all the same right it's not like right. all a bunch of like woke kids but what they do have in common is that they're on these platforms where they are interacting with stories of people who are different from them much more than any of us ever could before and i think that that actually is a gain um i think that that's significant um, and it's an area where Gen Z has the capacity to heal some of our wounds. Wow. Uh, and so there's a possibility for reciprocity. One last thing I'll say is sometimes yeah. I think in the disparagement that happens between generations, I think sometimes older generations were just hoping that their wounds would get validated. And maybe <laughs> their wounds went unvalidated. And so now they're looking at the younger generation going, well, you better buck up because that's what I've done. Absolutely. And I wonder what it might look like to, especially in our churches, seek some intergenerational healing, um, some healing that only becomes possible when um, in, in those kind of like intergenerational reciprocal interactions, uh, developing a sense of mutuality um, and, account and accountability across generations um, so that 
this generation can say, hey, I see your wounds. I see you. I see God meeting you in this place. And then the younger generation can turn to the older generation and say, I see your wounds. And I see what God is doing in those wounds. Like, I wonder what might be possible (laughs) in terms of how God is restoring us and how God is bringing us to wholeness. But real quickly, I just, there's going to be people that want to get in contact or people who want to know more. You've got an article that you're going to be, uh, that you're going to be doing. Is there anything else that you're, are you going to write? Are you writing a book? Like I'm, I'm in, like, I want to know what you're up to. (laughs) Yes. I I have multiple writing projects right now. I, I love to write. So um, I'm in the process of converting my dissertation into a book. So that's, you have to keep an ear out for that. That's going to be a yes. slow project, but it's going to happen. Okay. Um, and then I'm in talks with, uh, a friend of mine. We are, we're working on a book together. Um, I'm working on an article, uh, that will be published in religions, uh, journal coming up. So I've got I've got some different projects. So if you keep your ear to the ground for my name, you'll you'll see those publications materializing in the coming uh, year or two. Um, but uh, a way to get in touch with me if you have questions is uh, I work at Abilene Christian University. If you go to um, Abilene Christian University's website and look for my faculty profile, you will find my email address. Uh, and I welcome you to reach out if you have questions or if you would like to con- continue the conversation. Um, I also uh, am pretty active in some uh, academic conferences, so the Christian Scholars Conference, um, and also the Academy of Homiletics, uh, the Society of Biblical Literature, and American Academy of Religion. And so I like to be engaged in conversations at conferences. So if you ever find yourself at one of those conferences, um, look me up. I'd love to get together and chat. Oh, that is so good. And thank you so much. Well, I want to tell you what I tell all my guests. We are with you and God is for you, my sister. Amy, thank you for joining us today. You have been a blessing. Thank you. Thank you for having me.